0: Technically, last things uh, because we not only talk about end times; you talk about heaven, you talk about hell, and some of those other uh, other topics. But this is a little, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about is in the future. You know, we have you know Christ who goes up to heaven, and then you have a tribulation, <clears throat> and then there's some controversy about a thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay. And then you have what we call the eternal state. And so there's a lot of uh, discussion. I think um, some of the views of the end times, you have uh, amillennialism, which would just say that there's not really a thousand years, That's just kind of speaks of this whole age right here. You have um, uh, kind of a premillennial, or I'm sorry, it's uh, postmillennialism that we are in the thousand year reign right now And I think part of the appeal is the belief that when Jesus comes back, we jump right to the eternal state, right? When Jesus comes back, all death is gone, disease is gone, sorrow is gone. It's kind of like a one-stop, everything taken care of, re-arrival of Jesus Christ, does that make sense? And so one of the questions I think a lot of people have is, what do we make of this thousand year reign? Now clearly it is taught in Revelation chapter uh, 20 where it talks about two resurrections separated by a thousand years. But there are some passages in the Old Testament that don't quite fit into what we have right now and don't quite fit into the eternal state. I don't want to take you to one of them. We're going to go to Zechariah uh, chapter 14 and as we read it I want you to kind of take note does this describe our current reality or does this describe the eternal state or something else okay so I'll start reading verse 1 so behold a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, From east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and his holy ones with him. Okay, so when you kind of read that, I mean, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like a battle, right? And, and who's making his appearance? The Lord Christ. Yeah, the Lord Christ, right? So there's kind of like the Holy One with the saints with him, you know, touching down olive. The so there's this cataclysmic event where Jesus is right in the middle of it. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And so there's some some geological transformation that's taken place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Giba to Ramon, South of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited; for there shall never again be a decree about its destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths." Come, Raiders of Lost Ark-like, right there. (laughs) And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. (laughs) and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments, in great abundance, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So does that sound like heaven there? No. Right, there's kind of a, so you have Jerusalem and all the nations have to pay homage to Jerusalem, and if they don't, they will be struck with a plague, okay? Then everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king and the Lord of hosts and to keep the feasts of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves then, uh, then on them, there shall be no rain." There shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So you see this is kind of an interesting thing because you have many statements that would make you think that this is the eternal state, right? The Lord coming back, the Lord reigning, the Lord reigning from Jerusalem. So it wouldn't really fit into this category here, right? Right? But there's enough that you can't really say it's the eternal state because there's the presence of unbelievers and people that are almost coerced into paying homage to Jerusalem, right? And so this is part of the reason why this whole thousand-year reign of Christ kind of makes sense where it's a golden age for Israel, but it's not to be confused with the eternal state. Does that make sense? So when people kind of look for other proof texts, It's like, well, what do you make of that? When will that take place? Has it taken place? Uh, I would say it's very difficult to argue that that has taken place. That seems to be a future event. And so what I want to do is kind of set that up by um, really talking a little bit about what is the purpose of the millennium, right? What is the purpose of this thousand year reign? Why is there an interlude before we get to the eternal state, right? And, um, and I think there's a number of reasons for it. We're on page 10, by the way. Now, I will say, um, a lot of people in Jerusalem at the time, they wanted that thousand year reign right away, right? They wanted a messiah to come back, to kick out the enemies, kick out the Romans, and fulfill that prophecy right away. But then we have this interlude of the church age right here. Okay. But at the conclusion of the church age, is there going to be a future where Israel is kind of the center of the world and the center of the universe at that point in time? And basically, uh, I would argue that it will be the case because of some of the covenants that God made with Israel, right? So God chose them to be um, you know, his own people. And we learn from Romans uh, eleven twenty nine, 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, so we're gonna um, kind of read through some of these covenants. And it begins with a covenant to Abraham. Somebody wanna read Genesis 12, one through three? David wanna read that for me? And then we're gonna to go to uh, Deuteronomy 31 through 10 we would like to read that for me? Alakai? And then we got the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, 12 through 14, 12 through 16. you want to get that for me? And then we've got the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34.
1: Any volunteers for that one? Um, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Mm -hmm. go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. land which I will show you. Mm -hmm. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Mm -hmm. And I will bless those who bless you. Mm -hmm. And the one who curses you I will curse. Mm -hmm and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed.
0: Okay, so what's being promised there in that covenant?
1: Israel is to be blessed.
0: Yeah, and Israel is defined as, Because keep in mind, how did Israel get the name Israel? You guys remember? Jacob. So Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. Abraham, okay? So God singles out Abraham and says, from you, and specifically through your wife Sarah, you're going to have multiple descendants. They're going to be numerous, um, they're going to be a great nation, and they're going to bless the world. And what's interesting, do you guys know the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision, right? Don't make me go into detail, we all know what it is. But what's interesting about that is the the means by which you generate this great nation is set apart and sanctified. So it, it spreads biologically from generation to generation to generation. So when we get into who are the sons of Abraham, or who are the daughters of Abraham, who is the true Israel, we would understand it to be physical descendants of Abraham, okay? So if you read Romans uh, 11, it makes it very clear that the physical descendants of Abraham's are the ones who are entitled to this great promise that's given to the nation of Israel. Okay? Now we are grafted in and we do benefit, um, but there is a promise given on the basis of whose faith? It would be Abraham's faith. Okay? And that's one thing that's really interesting about this covenant is um, because Abraham was obedient, this is a promise given to all his descendants, irregardless of how they act. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so then there's some promises that build on top of this. Yeah, the Palestinian uh, covenant. Who has that one? Is that Deuteronomy?
2: Deuteronomy, yes. Yeah, yeah. um, Deuteronomy thirty. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Mm -hmm. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in uh, in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, so what's essentially promised there? Once they repent and turn to him, then he will... Bless them them with what? Promised
0: land. Huh? The the promised land, right? So there's a he's going to regather them, bless them, and protect them. Okay, so this you know, and this is a promise given to the children of Abraham. Okay, so the children of Abraham are going to be a great nation, and they're going to give be given a land to be a great nation. And when they're given the land, there's going to be a revival among them, and we'll talk more about what that means later. Okay, then you have the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, 10. Uh, Speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish
1: the throne of his kingdom forever. Mm -hmm. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men.
0: Uh-huh. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yeah, so that was being promised there. This is to David. He's going to do What?
1: Establish his throne forever. Yeah, establish his
0: throne forever. So basically, he's always going to have an heir. So when you look at building a house, like you look at House of Windsor, right? It's a royal family where there's one descendant after the other. And there's a a couple of things that are really interesting about this. One, he says, um, he will be a son to me, and when he disobeys, I will discipline him. Okay. So you look at, let's say, Solomon, and you kind of go on down the line. David's heirs would always be disciplined. If they're obedient, right, they and their kingdoms would be blessed. If they're disobedient, they and their kingdoms would be disobedient. And so when you read like 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, what you notice is as the king goes, so does the rest of the nation, right? Good kings, blessings, bad kings, curses. And so to kind of continue this line of kings, there's a couple ways of doing it, right? Which is, um, there will always be a son and then when the, son, when the king dies then his son takes pl- its place. But the problem with that is that means death would have to continue forever, right? So what you need is kind of like a, a terminal king, right? And in this case who's, who's the king? Terminal king it would be Jesus, right? Who would never die. And so as a son of David he will reign forever over the kingdom Love. of Israel, because that's where David was kind of stationed. That was his kingdom. And then one more um, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 31 to 34. Carson, you got that. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made. With their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Mm
2: -hmm. my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Mm -hmm. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Mm -hmm. They will not teach again,
1: each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord mm-hmm. for I will forgive their
0: iniquity and their sin I will remember no more okay so what's being promised there <coughs> what's the promise given to Israel right. eventually what will happen forgiveness. forgiveness yeah like why were they like what was Israel's problem What's their problem today? They don't recognize Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus, right? You know, part of the defining trait of being a Jew is you're not a Christian, therefore, you're not a follower of Christ, right? So there's a certain um, kind of hardness of heart. Uh, In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 11. Because what you see with the new covenant is there's going to be a future time where Israel will be given a new heart and a new spirit. And when they get all those things, what comes with it? They'll get the land and all the blessings that God has intended to give them. So there is some discussion about, well, maybe the church has replaced Israel, that all of those promises are actually... um, given to the church right that we can't necessarily take it that literally there's not really a future for israel israel is the people of god the church is the people of god so somehow those those promises transfer to them and paul deals with that in romans chapter 11. he says and in, starting verse 1 i'll just give you some of these highlights <coughs> i ask then has god rejected his people uh, by no means as I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, is he spiritually part of a- Israel? Right, he's giving his, his physical bona fides, right? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. <coughs> Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have been admo- your admo- admo- <coughs> altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but when the rest were hardened. Then it kind of goes on to talk about how the Gentiles are grafted in. And then he continues to um, make a case. We're going to pick it up in um, verse 22, okay? not then the kindness and severity of God, <clears throat> severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God mm-hmm. has a power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to the nature and to they cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches, those are the Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And then he goes on to say um, in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so he's talking about Israel being the people of Abraham, physical descendants. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, that is a quote from Isaiah 59:20 20 through 29, 21. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, so there's a there's a promise there, but because of their physical descendants, um, physical lineage from Abraham, they are still considered God's elect, and there will be a future for them. Yeah, Bree. So
1: does that mean that the people of Israel will be saved, mm-hmm.
2: regardless of whether they
0: believe in Christ? Well, this is my understanding. So if we go back to... Um, Let's say that passage in Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12. Starting verse 9. It says, On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would be under siege. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. Okay, so there's a a prophecy that they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. And so my understanding of that would be when, when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, they will see Jesus, and at that point in time, their hearts will be broken, they will weep, they will mourn, they will repent. And they'll believe in Jesus at that point in time. And that's when he will rescue them. So
2: present living Jews, not
0: all. Not all the Jews. Just the ones who are alive. Like You still have to believe in Jesus. And and that's why Paul talks about how there's a remnant. right? The remnant that believe in Jesus. Completed Jews. Um, But yeah, at the future time, all Israel will be saved in the future. They're not saved right now. Good question. Yeah, Judy. It be the...
2: Land of mm-hmm. It'd be the physical land.
0: Was that? It'd be bigger than what you <laughs> have today. Like all Israel's well, not occupied. You know. They're in the right place. At the they're in the right place. Um, but Israel's right to the land and when they're really going to give the land will accompany their revival. Okay, and so that's something that hasn't happened yet. Right. Providentially, they have the land. Uh, But they haven't been given the land in its fullness in the way that scripture has prophesied yet. Which I think is one of the reasons why we have to believe that those land promises will still be fulfilled because they are yet to be fulfilled. Yeah. Fully. Yeah. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about how Israel is a sovereign nation with a right to defend themselves. Because that's what, when you're a nation, that's what you're allowed to do. Um, But... The
2: fullness of the land promises just haven't been realized. It'll be accompanied with revival. Yeah. So, um, just piggybacking off of what was already asked, kind of making sure I understand mm-hmm. this correctly. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is that at the time of Jesus' return, those who are alive then mm-hmm. will, you know, be their hearts will be broken, and they mm-hmm. will they'll come back to Him. Yep. But those who have, it's not saying that He will raise all from the dead and then all the Jews who have died will no. also believe. No. So there are, there are those of Israel who have died who are, will be in hell? Yeah.
0: Okay. yeah. You're not saved by being a Jew. Okay. You're saved by believing in Jesus. <clears throat> but there's gonna be a future time when all the Jews who are alive at the coming of Christ while have their hearts broken, <clears throat> repent. And that's when he says all Israel will be saved. It's kind of during this future. And then they will enter into this thousand year reign and all the promises of the Old Testament uh, will come to pass at that point in time. So that's why, you know, part of the argument for the thousand year period is you have all these prophecies in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. And so either you spiritualize them and say, well, that belongs to the church, or you somehow try to squeeze them into the eternal state, but they don't really fit either place. So the millennium and the mention of this millennial reign of Christ Kind of gives an allowance for um, a lot of those prophecies to be fulfilled.
2: And then does the millenniums? sorry. gonna um, Does the millennium set up for the final, um, the final rebellion against mm-hmm. God, which yeah. then leads into the So at the state? end, yeah.
0: So Satan will be kept, will be kind of put into prison during this time. Mm-hmm. Will be released at the end and lead a a big um, uprising against. Israel. So remember how you kind of have forced compliance of all the nations? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they're still unbelievers in this time, but they have to comply. Yeah. But Satan will come out, and that's when you'll have like this final battle at the end, which is what we read about in Revelation. Carson? So Ezekiel 37, like the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, is, is that a picture of this? Um, yeah, you get into something. I would say, at a minimum, that would be a picture of God bringing the Jews back to um, the promised land, which happened after the exile. So you kind of get into some interesting thoughts about, can that be a picture of something in the future as well? I think it could be. Um, like one of the passages that, when we look at interpreting <coughs> prophecy, sorry for getting all technical on you guys, but uh, would be in 1 John chapter 2, let's all turn there. <coughs> So in 1 John 2 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Right? So there's a central figure called the Antichrist, right? But then he makes a reference that many Antichrists have come before that. And so the the Antichrist would have certain attributes, right? A tyrant able to kind of seize absolute power will afflict God's people and (coughs) if we were to kind of look through history I mean who would be some example of of people who would fit that description yeah Hitler would be chief among them right and so (coughs) there is a sense um, and this is kind of linguistic theory here you have something called sense and uh, reference. <coughs> okay. So the sense of the antichrist would be, you know, a tyrant, evil. Maybe you know, consolidates power. <coughs> and who the ultimate one would be the future Antichrist, right? But this sense applies to anybody who fits that description. So Hitler would be one of them as well, right? So, and this one kind of builds anticipation of this one, of this one that's, is, uh, that is coming as well. Okay, So this is kind of an interesting way of looking at fulfilled prophecy. For instance, in Isaiah um, chapter 7 talks about how a virgin will be with child. Okay, And then later on, you see that there's going to be a young woman who gives birth to a child and, a, you know, and that's to be assigned to Hezekiah. Well, that is the sense, but there's also you know, the child in Isaiah would be one and then Jesus would be the other reference as well. So some of these prophecies have certain senses that can point to multiple reference points, but then it points to the ultimate one. That's kind of the ultimate aim. Yeah.
2: There's just um, the antichrist. Mm -hmm. There's an an R missing. Oh, Ah. there it is, thank
0: you. Sorry. (laughs) I'm so used to uh, like Grammarly. There you go. Yeah. Antichrist, yeah, it's not quite the same thing. So that's why, so when you talk about the Valley of Dry Bones, um, I think you can make a reference to, obviously, there's a fulfillment in ancient Israel. You might be able to make a, um, you might be able to say that's happening today, although we can't really know for sure. We don't know how it ends. But we know it's going to happen in the future as well, right? Where sometimes we have previews of fulfilled prophecy. that show us that the sense is real and it will happen in the future. So that's why I like Hitler and what he did. I mean, you can read about Revelation and you can really see how it can happen, right? Why is it that people just just irrationally hate the Jews? You know, why is it that the whole world system in Revelation is dead set against the Jews? Well, is the spirit of the Antichrist is still present? Okay, Judy? Did you pick? Hamas in that Antichrist group because I have read and mm-hmm. said about Hamas that he's even worse than Hitler. Yeah, and that's a group. The Antichrist speaks of an individual. So there would have to be, if there's one central figure that was, that was able to kind of unite nations <coughs> against the Jews, maybe it fit more into that category. I'm not sure if Hamas would quite be there yet. Um, we don't want to call everybody the antichrist. There are certain qualifications that have to take place. Somebody had a little hand up over
1: here. OK, Leah.
0: You may have already covered this, and I totally missed it, but is that 1,000-year reign only Israel, or are we somehow involved with it? We would be raptured at that point. So whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture, you know, God will take his church home, right, and then the people who survive will walk into the millennium. So what's interesting is Israel won't be, they'll be regenerated, but they won't be glorified, okay? And that's part of the reason why I think having a rapture at this point, there would be no Gentiles left to walk into the millennium. So one of the reasons why I believe that the rapture happens before then is you have to have Jews and Gentiles who are both saved, right? who are not glorified, you could still have kids. You have Jews and Gentile children, and it will be some of the Gentile children who aren't necessarily
2: regenerate that would be part of the rebellion here. Yeah? So in 1 John 2.22 it says, uh, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who Mm -hmm. denies the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously I want to be really cautious, but Mm -hmm. if we're going down that vein, would that be to say that um, modern day Israel would also be considered an Antichrist not the Antichrist necessarily. Uh, Possibly
0: the spirit of the Antichrist but eventually they're going
2: to be redeemed. Of course, of course. I I just mean like in the current sense of like that's why they're under a curse is because they have the spirit of, of an Antichrist.
0: Yeah and again they're, I mean, and you look at modern Israel it is not a sanctified nation. I mean they have, you know, they tolerate all kinds of immorality. Many of them are secular and they have reject, um, you know, the Hebrew religion, but they want to keep the Hebrew culture. Um, so yeah, the spirit of, yeah, but the spirit of the Antichrist is what unites him is he's the alternative to Christ. He's kind of the central person that everyone kind of rallies behind. <clears throat> and every once in a while, a figure like that pops up in history where he basically unites unbelievers as a counterfeit version of Christ. And that's really where Hitler came in as like the savior of Germany and the German people, right? And the way to consolidate his reign was to scapegoat the Jews and unite them around the hatred towards him. So you kind of see a preview of that. Um, the future Antichrist, it'll be on a worldwide scale where he will be able to unite them, consolidate him, and really kind of unite the world against, against Israel. And so you see anti-Semitism in all its ugliness. That will be one of the... The things that drive it. And I think that's one thing with this whole thing with Hamas right now is just how many people in high society think it's okay to hate Jews.
1: Scott, were you going to say something? No, I, I was just, sometimes it uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, John 8 when the comment earlier about how you know, you're not saved because you're a Jew, but all the Jews. Will, where Jesus is interacting with those who say, we're sons of Abraham. Yeah. Right? So there's, there's that sense in which there's many sons of Abraham who are not really, Yeah, you know, he says, you're of your father the devil. Mm-hmm. You know, but God's ultimate plan is to redeem and save.
0: Yeah. And there is a sense where, you know, they are physical sons of Abraham. You can say that we are spiritual sons of Abraham. But in the future the physical and spiritual sons of abraham will be will be linked but that will happen at the end when there's a massive revival. and so that's why it's interesting that the jews are still alive today they're the most hated people on earth and yet god still preserves them for the fulfillment of this future prophecy. okay, any questions? so all that to say kind of technical stuff kind of geeking out with you, sorry about that. We'll talk about something more practical as we kind of move into hell, right? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll kind of start off with this question. Um, you know, this past week, uh, maybe two weeks ago, a, a gentleman by the name of Carlton Pearson uh, passed away. You guys ever heard of Carlton Pearson? Hi. Maybe, yeah. You gotta go back the 1980s, early 90s Christianity. Uh, one of the major uh, Christian figures of that time was Oral Roberts. You might have heard of Oral Roberts University. He was a well-known faith healer uh, who had an extensive ministry and one of his protégés was a man by the name of Carlton Pearson. Uh, They actually had a Netflix movie about him called Come Sunday and he was someone who um, was a passionate evangelist, very effective speaker, and had a, a large growing church in uh, the Tulsa area. But then a couple things happened. Number one, he had a uh, an uncle who was in and out of prison die, and he had to reckon with what is his spiritual fate. And then he saw pictures of the, I think maybe some maybe the Rwandan genocide or something like that, just immense suffering in Africa. And he just thought to himself, how could a good God allow this to happen? And being that he was a Pentecostal, he believed that God spoke to him and he believed that God told him that there is no hell and that everyone goes to heaven. So why is that a tempting thought for people?
1: whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Well, if you had a family member that he cared about, and he wasn't sure that that family member
0: was saved, mm-hmm. that is a hard thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, anybody seen that movie? Come Sunday? Okay. There's a real interesting, the opening is about Carlton is on an airplane, and he talks to the person next to him and he he shares the gospel with them. And as it keeps on going, you just see how he's always burdened, that he has to have this conversation. Doesn't matter how tired he is, how worn out he is, I gotta do it again because hell is real. You also find out that his music pastor um, you know is is gay and there's a scene where he says, well, you, just because you don't believe in hell doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. But then at the end, he has a gay affirming church. And do you know what happened to his church? His church was thousand, maybe 5,000 people at the time. What do you think happened to his church? Yeah, it, it died, it died. And so, um, very interesting movie, by the way. I'm sure the Smiths are putting it on their list. We're gonna watch that. <laughs> But but it is about the implications of of universalism. And so it's something that is um, super tempting, but what you believe about hell, and I think that's something that this movie unintentionally kind of brings out, what you believe about hell kind of determines a lot of things about Christianity in general, right? So if if you don't believe in hell, what would that do to the Christian faith? There's no, no, con- what's that? there's no consequence for your sin. There's no consequence for your sin.
2: Yeah, what do we need to be saved from?
0: What do we need to be saved from? Why do mm-hmm. just have to die? Yeah,
2: I think it means that sin isn't inherently negative anymore. Mm-hmm. If you can, you can go do whatever you want. Then, then there's mm-hmm. nothing actually bad about it. So okay, yes. yeah, practically, well, they say, well.
0: There is, it is bad, you shouldn't do it but the question is why not
1: if you spend a lifetime separating yourself from God how does that make sense that now you're going to be ushered into the presence of God forever mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense
0: Yeah. how else would your behavior change if you didn't believe in hell
2: it takes with the urgency of sharing the gospel with people, because they're going to find it in no matter what, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. How would it shape a church?
2: Would there really even be a point to it? <coughs> hmm It'd be more like a motivational gathering, just to talk about nice things. Mm-hmm.
1: comes becomes more pleasure-seeking at that point because you're going to get built up by your friends and yeah. network and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has yeah. to. Oh, go ahead should, then, Judy. I was just going to say it has to change your view of who God is. You have to believe in a God that either tolerates sin or, or is not, not a holy God who doesn't have mm-hmm. wrath towards sin. Or who punches sin in some other way? It's not as mm-hmm. great as an offense, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not as big of a deal. Yeah, it makes God much more like us. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Judy? Just
0: in my opinion, I would think if you didn't believe in hell,
2: you wouldn't believe in sin, and if you didn't believe in hell, you wouldn't believe. That there's a God that would punish you to put you in hell. Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> yeah.
2: If hell was non-existent.
0: hmm S- Yeah. Are you gonna say something, Josh?
2: Yeah. It also, um, but it, it it takes away any sense that there's justice beyond this life. So mm-hmm. actually, if you don't think about this initially because they think of their their lost loved one, they went sure yeah. they're okay. But uh, people who get away with evil in this life. Yeah. yeah. There actually is no consequence. So it brings no questions about the nature of justice and if God's actually just. It's usually it's against hell, as if yeah. God's not just by sending people to hell. But the real question is, what do you do with the rapist, the murderer, the child abuser, the liar, the thief, who gets away with it? There's no justice in the end if there is no hell. The yeah. very handsome man behind is. Yes. I think we also have to call
0: in the question, of use integrity? Because when he taught about hell, he said
1: there was mm-hmm. no... Yeah. Jesus is, like we say, there is no hell. Jesus
0: is right a yeah. liar. or deluded, and he can be because yeah. he's God. Yeah, that's true. And I think about after 9 um, 11, right, the 9 11 hijackers, we all got an education in uh, Islamic theology where because they died in a jihad, um, they would go to this eternal paradise with 70 virgins for each one of them to satisfy their carnal pleasures for all eternity, do you know what I'm saying, and that was like, so you basically murder a bunch of innocent people and that's the reward that you get? right? But people were more open to believing in hell after that than before that, right, because it just didn't seem fair that everyone, that the Jews and, and Hitler end up in the same place. Now. They do, but there are some variations there. We could talk a little bit more about um, degrees of punishment. But that's why, like, hell is, um, and I think that's something that with Carlson Pearson is, when he removed hell from the church, the church died, right? And I think you look at evangelicalism, right? And, and one thing that we're really defined by uh, is the gospel. And the gospel is good news, and what's the good news?
1: Or well, we some... were dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ died for us, yeah, and enemies to God. Yeah, he brought us near to God. Yeah,
0: so you can avoid what? Hell,
1: you can avoid separation,
0: hell and be with with Christ in heaven forever, right? But if we're all going to heaven anyway, then what's the good news? Yeah, there, there's, and what are you exactly saved from? If you're never in danger to begin with. Does that make
1: sense? It's, it's almost like uh, you know what would be the point of your the doctors and hospitals if, if no one died, if there was no death. Mm-hmm. Think about well I feel bad, you know, like well if there's no death, you can either live with how you feel forever or maybe mm-hmm. try and make it better. So it's like yeah. there's almost a therapeutic sense to rationale or justifying your church if you take it all out that like that's about but Yeah.
0: And hell is one of those doctrines that is um, continually assaulted over and over again, right? Have you guys ever gotten into conversations and and, and what's the classic objection with hell? We're going
2: through hell right now.
0: Or how could a loving, God. a loving God send someone to a place of eternal torment, right? When you guys were in... Did they make you guys read um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God when you were in high school? No, they dropped it? Did? Okay.
2: Did you guys have to read it
0: in your English? Leo, did you? No? Okay. They probably took that out of the required reading list. But it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God uh, was written by Jonathan Edwards, who you could probably argue was um, one of the smartest men to ever live on American soil. I mean, the guy was brilliant. And if you actually, I remember we had a vice principal who dressed up like a Puritan and would perform it for our class. And it was like, and the idea was just to expose you to the Puritan way of thinking and the literature at the time. But if you read that sermon, man, it is brilliant. Where all of these images, about the only reason why you are not in hell is because the God that you have slandered, blasphemed, and rebelled against has graciously kept you out of there for just a little bit, right? And at any point in time, you will drop like a rock through a spider's web into the, you know, into the fire. And so yes, and so it was part of the great awakening, right, where uh, at that time, many people thought that they were they were good because they're part of the institutional church but the revival has said it's not enough for you to do that you have to be born again and the warnings of hell became very real impression where you know hell's not for other people it's actually for you and that really kind of got people's attention so that's kind of an example of it so it's one of those things where um you know jesus clearly talked about hell hell is really another term for judgment right and If you look at the first doctrine that's uh, denied in the Bible, do you know what it is? You shall surely not die, right? You're not really going to die, right? So judgment has always been denied. So that's why um, it's going to be important next week when we get together to kind of survey how do people kind of reckon with hell. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about, you know, what is hell like and and. I'll try to give you some insight about how to defend it and even how to try to make sense of it so that when you get into that question, how can a loving God allow people to go to hell? We'll we'll talk more about that. But without hell, there's really not much. I mean, if you take away hell, you take away the doctrine of judgment and you take away one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So uh, any final thoughts, questions? Okay, I'll go ahead and pray for us and then we'll go to the next part of our service. Well, Father, I do thank you for uh, these brothers and sisters, and I pray as we um, you know, kind of start to ponder the horrors of hell that we will be more resolved to do what we can to make sure that people are warned of the wrath to come and rescued from it as well. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, the clarity of your scriptures and what it promises in the future, and we look forward to a future day when we will see you face to face. In Christ's name, amen.